Welcome and thank you for joining me on episode 3 of Galaxy Rise. This is the January 2019 edition of the show and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. So 2018 was a challenging year on many fronts. Here in the US, we found ourselves grappling with rather unsettling political climate, which resulted in a series of wins and losses for the scientific community. The 2019 NASA budget has a number of new missions being greenlit, while crucial funding for citizen science and education programs has been cut. Also, in the recent midterm elections, the defeat of many Republicans raised early concerns about incumbent space exploration project budgets coming under fire by incoming Democrats. Finally, as our federal politicians find themselves at odds about funding a border wall between the U.S. and Mexico, we are presently in the midst of a government shutdown, with nearly all federal employees on an unpaid leave indefinitely, putting many active missions and critical space science services in understaffed maintenance modes. On the bright side, the year presented itself with a large number of firsts in space exploration, astronomy, and in my own life. Some highlights for the science include, SpaceX's amazing launch of its Falcon Heavy back in February, which heralded this private space industry's entry into heavy lift launch services. Mars InSight lander launched in April, and it landed flawlessly in late November. In August, NASA and ESA scientists released a new composite deep field image showing over 15,000 galaxies using the ultraviolet imaging spectrograph on Hubble's Wide Field Camera 3 camera, an area of the sky about the size of a coin held at arm's length. ESA's brilliant Mercury-bound BepiColombo spacecraft launched on its seven-year trip in October. JAXA's Hayabusa 2 rendezvoused with asteroid Ryugu, placing the first of three surface exploration drones, and NASA's OSIRIS-REx arrived two years after its start of its journey to the asteroid Bino. The LIGO and Virgo gravitational wave detector collaborations announced a total of 10 observations from September 15th through August 2017. This was release of the first edition of a gravitational wave catalog back in December. Finally, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft, about 4 billion miles away from Earth, navigated the final stretch of its Pluto flyby mission extension, successfully reaching and imaging the target, a 10 mile by 20 mile long snowman-shaped Kuiper Belt object, 2014 MU69 on January 1st, 2019. For me, the year was an amazing transformation on many levels. I turned 47 back in February, and I hit a bit of an existential low. I decided to pursue my dream of owning a portable planetarium and teaching kids about space. Well, I don't own a portable planetarium yet, but I've since immersed myself into the amazing world of science communication, met a number of inspiring role models from around the world, online and in real life, became an official volunteer STEM educator at the University of New Hampshire, and I'm starting up a new science discovery club for kids on January 7th. Oh yeah, I decided to start my own SciComm channel and podcast launching Galaxy Rise back in October. I need to give some shoutouts. First, to the good folks over at Awesome Astronomy Podcast. They are indeed the first podcast I subscribe to. Thanks so much to Ralph, Paul, Jenny, Damien, and John. I pretty much owe it all to you guys. Then Steve, Bob, and Jay Novella, Cara Santamaria, and Evan Bernstein at the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, and all the Patreon patrons over on Discord. Becoming a critical thinking skeptic has been truly life-changing for me, and I really enjoy the camaraderie of all these fine people. Dr. Pamela Gay and all the Cosmo Quest, Dr. Paul M. Sutter from Ask Spaceman, Fraser Kane from Universe Today, Skylius on Twitch, and everyone who helps these amazing people do their jobs, thank you all. Finally, I'm very grateful to all the music labels and artists who have let me play their music this year and kindly shared my post and supported the show. And then, obviously, thanks to you all. The feedback has been really great in 2018, and I'm really glad to hear folks are enjoying the show. I myself look forward to what 2019 has to bring for all of us.
that's a new favorite right there, House of Black Lanterns from the UK on the 2017 release, Short Stories, You Were Telling Me of Mountains, the standalone tracks. That track is, and we will run free. The album is heavily synth-driven, more so than the sample and loop-based breakbeat DJ cut style I've heard on other releases from the prolific Dylan Richards. I urge you to check this out in his whole catalog. Buy this album over at houseofblacklanterns.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Launch Report. Here I'm going to cover some general space and aerospace related news from the past few weeks. And then of course we'll review some recent and upcoming rocket launches. On December 11th, Russian cosmonauts Oleg Konyenko and Sergei Propkiev conducted an explorational spacewalk to inspect the exterior of the attached Soyuz MS-09 Earth Return spacecraft. Back in August, ISS Mission Control identified a pressure leak in the habitation module of this ship. Astronauts and cosmonauts confirmed that there was indeed a small hole which appeared to be drilled, piercing the capsule hull. The hull was patched with epoxy and sealant, and the ISS integrity returned to normal. On its now historic 7-hour, 45-minute spacewalk, which was a 213th for Russia, supporting the ISS since 1998, the pair had to cut through layers of protective covering to expose the exteriors of the patched hole. On live NASA TV, viewers witnessed a harrowing display of stabbing and cutting with blades and shears required to penetrate through to clear away the rugged materials. Concern ran high, with ground control actually warning the pair not to be so harsh in their efforts, out of fear of accidental harm or damage to either of the pair or the craft. Eventually, the area was exposed and inspected fully, and subsequent review of images and samples taken to the area confirmed patch integrity. On December 20th, the craft successfully brought home NASA astronaut Serena Anyon Chancellor, cosmonaut Sergei Propkev, and former ISS commander, German ESA astronaut Alexander Gerst. The habitation module separated from the return capsule and burned up in the Earth's atmosphere as normal. The mystery of the hull's origin remains, and it's likely to keep NASA, Russia, and ESA investigators busy for some time. December was the start of the newly awarded NASA contract to Harris Corporation of Rochester, New York for the Optical Telescope Assembly, OTA, for the agency's Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, WFIRST, currently on track to launch in the mid-2020s. In May 2018, WFIRST passed a key project milestone, clearing it to enter its preliminary design phase and begin major procurement for flight hardware. With its 2.4-meter telescope, a single WFIRST image will uncover millions of galaxies. Included in this volume of new data will be hundreds of similar examples of what are today's most prized and rare Hubble discoveries. For example, where Hubble has only found a few galaxies within 500 million years of the Big Bang, we now know that WFIRST will find hundreds of these rare objects. In addition, the WFIRST coronagraph instrument will directly image ice and gas giant exoplanets. The total value of the contract is approximately $195 million and runs from November 30, 2018 through December 1, 2025. Harris Corporation will provide personnel, services, materials, equipment, and facilities necessary to build, refurbish, and modify the OTA as required to meet WFIRST performance requirements. They will also provide post-delivery support for both the observatory integration and test program, as well as for in-orbit observatory checkout and commissioning. A big part of my work involves educational outreach of space sciences and astronomy. I rely heavily on the internet and online resources provided by all space agencies and organizations to keep current and provide my students fun and accessible lessons and projects. I was excited to see ESA Education Office launch their new and improved ESA Kids website. The new content structure and site navigations offer easy access to all space-related information, resources, multimedia, and activities for children. The ESA Kids site provides space-inspired technology, engineering, mathematics, and STEM content geared towards 5 to 12 year olds in English, German, Dutch, Spanish, French, and Italian. The site now features many videos and animations on different STEM subjects in the new dedicated multimedia section. The site also includes video and animation from other ESA missions like Rosetta and the recently launched Bepi Colombo spacecraft to Mercury. It was also designed as a go-to platform for educators. The new teacher section provides classroom projects and teaching resources, along with many di different teacher training sessions provided by ESA Education. You can visit the site at www.esa.int forward slash kids. 
So December was a very busy month for launches. On December 4th, Arian Space launched an Arian 5 rocket, sending the GSAT-11 communications and GeoCompSat 2A weather satellites into orbit. On the 5th, SpaceX launched the Falcon 9 rocket with the 16th cargo delivery flight of the Dragon spacecraft to the ISS. Then on December 7th, a Chinese Long March 2D rocket successfully launched the Saudisat-5A and 5B Earth observation satellites along with 10 smaller payloads for private companies. On December 19th, India's GSLV MK2 rocket launched a GSAT 7A communication satellite for the Indian Air Force. And across the ocean, Ariane Space launched a Soyuz rocket designated VS 20, carrying the CSO military reconnaissance satellite for the French military. On the 20th, a Russian government proton rocket and a Brizmet M upper stage launched the Blagovest No. 13L communication satellite. SpaceX was added again on the 23rd with a successful launch of the U.S. Air Force's first third-generation satellite for GPS known as GPS-3 SV-01. And finally on December 27th, Roscosmos launched a Soyuz rocket with the Canopus V-5 and 6 Earth observation satellites, assisting in disaster response, mapping, and forest fire detection, along with 26 secondary payloads from international companies and institutions. And January is quite full as well. Hopefully, on January 6th, United Launch Alliance Delta IV Heavy will launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base. The rocket will launch a classified spy satellite for the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office, simply called NROL-71. The next day, SpaceX will launch a Falcon 9 from the same base, but on a different launch pad, the SLC-4E. On board will be 10 satellites for the Iridium Mobile Communications Fleet. On January 16th, keep an eye out for Japan's Ypsilon rocket launching from the Ichinora Space Center, delivering JAXA's RAPIS-1 and six other payloads on a rideshare mission. RAPIS is short for Rapid Innovation Payload Demonstration Satellite. On January 18th, SpaceX is set to launch its Crew Dragon Demo-1 spacecraft in an uncrewed test flight on board a Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center. On the 23rd, Ariane Space will use an Ariane 5 rocket designated VA-247 to launch the Helisat-4 and Saudi Geosat-1 on a joint mission of Arabsat and the Saudi government and a GSAT-31 communications satellite for the Indian Space Research Organization. January 25th brings us to another ULA launch, this time from Cape Canaveral with the SLC-37B Wideband Global Satcom spacecraft for the US military aboard a Delta IV rocket. And last on the roster for January is a GSLV rocket due to launch from the Satish Dhawan Space Center. This vehicle will launch the Chandrayaan-2 mission, India's second mission to the moon. The payload consists of an orbiter, the Vikram lander, and rover launched together in high Earth orbit. The orbiter is designed to use onboard propulsion to reach the moon and then will release the lander and rover. Exciting stuff.
track is called Rainy Days, and it's the first track of 31 total songs in the impressive Milieu Music 2018 yearbook. The album features a range of styles from artist Brian Granger, who has over 600 album and EP releases since 2007. I love how the album drifts through various beat-driven synth styles over into the more experimental and ambient realms, and you can buy this and any of Brian's albums over at milieu.bandcamp.com. That's M-I-L-I-E-U.bandcamp.com. This month on the Hubble Moment, I wanted to spend some time paying respects to a hero and a champion of astronomy who passed away over the holidays. Dr. Nancy Grace Roman, an American astronomer and NASA scientist, died on December 26, 2018 at the age of 93. She's known to many as the mother of Hubble for her instrumental role in playing the Hubble Space Telescope through the 1970s. Roman was the first chief of astronomy from 1961 to 1963 in NASA's Office of Space Science, setting up the initial program she was the first woman to hold an executive position at the Space Agency. Fellow NASA colleague Edward J. Weiler stated, Regretfully, history has forgotten a lot in today's internet age, but it was Nancy in the old days before the internet and before Google and email and all that stuff who really helped sell the Hubble Space Telescope, organize astronomers, who eventually convinced Congress to fund it. Like most women in the sciences of the mid-20th century, Roman was faced with problems related to male domination in space and technology, and the roles perceived as appropriate for women at that time. Throughout her early life and education, she was continually discouraged from learning math and sciences and going into astronomy by the people around her. Though many might consider Hubble to be her greatest legacy, Roman herself told National Geographic in an interview several years ago that she was proudest of two things. First was her research on stars. One of Dr. Roman's earliest publications was in 1955 in the Astrophysical Journal Supplemental Series and it was a catalog of high-velocity stars. She documented new spectral types, photoelectric magnitudes and colors, and spectroscopic parallaxes for about 600 high-velocity stars. Then, in 1959, Roman wrote a paper on the detection of extraterrestrial planets. Roman discovered that stars made of hydrogen and helium move faster than stars composed of other heavier elements. One of her other discoveries was finding that not all stars that were common were the same age. This was proven by comparing hydrogen lines of the low dispersion spectra in stars. Roman noticed that the stars with the stronger lines moved closer to the center of the Milky Way and others moved in more elliptical patterns off the plane of the galaxy. My work helped others explore the evolution of the galaxy, she recalled. The other work in which she's most proud was the International Ultraviolet Explorer, or IUE, which facilitated over 100,000 observations of stars. The IUE, primarily designed to take ultraviolet spectra, was a collaborative project between NASA, the UK Science Research Council, and the European Space Agency. The mission was first proposed in early 1964 by a group of scientists in the United Kingdom and was launched January 26, 1978. Its mission was initially set for three years, but in the end it lasted almost 18 years, with the satellite being shut down in 1996. By the end of its mission, it was considered by far the most successful and productive space observatory mission ever. For many years after the end of the mission, its archive was the most heavily used dataset in astronomy, and IUE data has been used in over 250 PhD projects worldwide. Throughout her career, Roman was also an active public speaker and educator, and an advocate for women in sciences. On a more lighthearted note, in 2017, a Women of NASA LEGO set went on sale featuring many figurines of Roman, famed computer scientist Margaret Hamilton, and legendary astronauts Mae Jemison and Sally Ride. Though she may have left us in life, her legacy and contributions have left an indelible mark on astronomy and space sciences forever. Thank you, and rest in peace, Dr. Roman.
newly acquired track courtesy of the artist Thomas Ragsdale, that is Flower of Yorkshire, off his 2016 release, Dear Awakaria. It's a heavily ambient album constructed entirely from affected guitar and piano recordings. You can buy this and all of his self-released albums at thomasragsdalemusic.bandcamp.com. So this month on Exclusively Exos, we're going to take a look over at what the European Space Agency has going on. The characterizing exoplanet satellite, or KEOPS, is targeting launch between October 15th and November 14th of 2019. KEOPS will launch on an Arian Space Soyuz rocket, sharing the ride with a satellite that is part of the Italian's Cosmos SkyMed constellation. The two satellites will separate into their own orbits soon after ascent, with KEOPS operating in a low Earth orbit at an altitude of 700 kilometers. The satellite will observe individual bright stars that are known to host exoplanets, in particular those in the Earth to Neptune size range. By targeting known planets, KEOPS will know exactly when and where to point and catch the exoplanet as it transits across the disk of its host star. Its ability to observe multiple transits of each planet will enable scientists to achieve the high-precision transit signatures that are needed to measure the size of small planets. This and other data from KEOPS will be used to establish the bulk density of the planets, placing constraints on their composition. These, together with information on the host stars and the planet's orbits, will provide key insights to the formation and evolutionary history of planets in the super-Earth to Neptune size range. The satellite, which recently completed its environmental test campaigns at ESA Technical Center in the Netherlands, is currently at Airbus Defense in Space in Spain to perform final tests, ahead of being declared fit for launch in early 2019. Also, ESA announced that the construction of their new exo-hunting Plato spacecraft has begun. The announcement was made recently at the 69th International Astronautical Congress in Bremen, Germany. The contract awarded to Germany's OHB System AG covers delivery of the satellite, including the testing phase leading to launch, support during launch, and the in-orbit commissioning phases. PLATO, short for Planetary Transits and Oscillations of STARS mission, will be launched in 2026 to find and study extrasolar planetary systems, with a special emphasis on rocky planets around Sun-like stars and their habitable zone, the distance from a star where liquid water can exist on a planet's surface. Plato is a next-generation exoplanet mission that will monitor thousands of bright stars over a large area of the sky in search of tiny, regular dips in their brightness caused by transiting planets, said Anna Harris, Plato project scientist at ESA. Since planets only block a minute portion of the light radiated by their parent star, this quest requires extremely precise, long-term photometric observations. Plato will not only seek new planets, but will also investigate the properties of their host stars and determine the planetary masses, sizes, and ages with unprecedented accuracy. This will help scientists understand the architecture of exoplanet systems and determine whether they might host habitable worlds. In addition, Plato will also perform astroseismology, the study of seismic activity of stars, providing insight into the stellar interiors and evolution. The mission will expand on the work of KEOPS and will be followed by Ariel, scheduled for launch in 2028, which will observe a large and diverse sample of exoplanets to study their atmospheres in greater detail. Plato will operate from the L2 virtual point in space, 1.5 million kilometers beyond Earth as seen from the Sun. From this vantage point, it will be our outpost to unravel the mysteries of a multitude of extrasolar worlds. And in recent exoplanetary research news, the mass of a very young exoplanet has been revealed for the first time using data from ESA's star mapping spacecraft Gaia and its predecessor, the quarter-century retired Hipparchus satellite. Astronomers Ignis Selen and Anthony Brown from Leiden University in the Netherlands deduced that the mass of the planet Beta Pictoris b from the motion of its host star over a long period of time as captured by both Gaia and Hipparchus. The planet is a gas giant similar to Jupiter, but according to the new estimate, is 9 to 13 times more massive. It orbits the star Beta Pictoris, the second brightest star in the constellation Pictor. The planet was only discovered in 2008 in images captured by the Very Large Telescope at the European Southern Observatory in Chile. Both the planet and the star are only about 20 million years old, roughly 225 times younger than the solar system. Its young age makes the system intriguing, but also difficult to study using conventional methods. On the other hand, the star is very hot, rotates fast, and it pulsates. 
This behavior makes it difficult for astronomers to accurately measure the star's radial velocity, the speed at which it appears to periodically move towards and away from the Earth. Tiny changes in the radial velocity of a star caused by the gravitational pull of planets in its vicinity are commonly used to estimate the masses of exoplanets. But this method mainly works for systems that have already gone through the fiery early stages of their evolution. In the case of Beta Pictoris b, upper limits of the planet's mass range had been arrived at before using radial velocity methods. To obtain a better estimate, the astronomers used a different method, taking advantage of the Hipparchus and Gaia's measurements that reveal the precise position and motion of the planet's host star in the sky over time. The star moves in its position in the sky for different reasons. First, the star circles around the center of the Milky Way, just as the Sun does. That appears from Earth as a linear motion projected on the sky, called proper motion. And then there is its parallax effect, which is caused by the Earth orbiting around the Sun. Because of this, over time, astronomers see the star from slightly different angles. And then there is something that the astronomers describe as tiny wobbles in the trajectory of the star across the sky. Minuscule deviations from the expected course caused by the gravitational pull of the planet at the star's orbit. This is the same wobble that could be measured via changes in the radial velocity, but along a different direction, on the plane of the sky, rather than along the line of sight. The researchers were looking at the deviation from what would be expected if there was no planet, and then measured the mass of the planet from the significance of this deviation. The more mass of the planet, the more significant the deviation. To be able to make such an assessment, the astronomers needed to observe the trajectory of the star for a long period of time to properly understand the proper motion and the parallax effect. The Gaia mission, designed to observe more than 1 billion stars in our galaxy, will eventually be able to provide information about a large number of exoplanets. In the 22 months of observations, included in Gaia's second data release, published in April, the satellite had recorded the star Beta Pictoris about 30 times. That, however, was not enough. Combining the Gaia measurements with those from ESA's Hipparchus mission, which observed Beta Pictoris 111 times between 1990 and 1993, enabled Igneous and Anthony to get their results much faster. This led to the first successful estimate of a young planet's mass using astrometric measurements. The result represents an important step towards better understanding the processes involved with planet formation and anticipates the exciting exoplanet discoveries that will be unleashed by Gaia's future data releases. Here I am again, blown away by another release from my new friends over at Burning Witches Records. That's the band Alone in the Woods off their brand new self-titled album. The track is called Digging Holes. The duo are John Dobins and Lon Bologna. The entire album is great. 
There are still limited quantities of the gorgeous green swirly vinyl, which comes with a digital album as well. Pick it up at burningallwitches.bandcamp.com. Hey, welcome to Mission Control. We've all been eagerly awaiting the now historic New Year's Eve imaging campaign of Kuiper Belt Object 2014 MU69 by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft. The venerable probe reached rockstar status back in 2015 with its amazing imaging campaign of dwarf planet Pluto. During the years before reaching Pluto, New Horizons principal investigator Alan Stern and his brilliant team were already setting their sights on a potential flyby mission after its primary objective was reached. In 2014, using the Hubble Space Telescope, the New Horizons team identified a candidate Kuiper Bell object which garnered the catalog ID of 2014 MU69. Even with Hubble's tremendous abilities, the faint 20 mile by 10 mile oblong object was just a pixel moving among the stars due to its low reflectivity and the dimness of the sun's light some 4 billion miles from Earth. In early 2018, mission staff settled upon the temporary name of Ultima Thule until a formal name could be set by the solar system naming processes of the International Astronomical Union. In a stunning feat of engineering, the spacecraft team managed to fly within 2,200 miles of the target at 12.33 a.m. January 1, 2019. The first images were received later that day and revealed to the more than 100 scientists who were collaborating on the mission. An overnight shift of researchers poured over the data and assembled a suite of images revealed on January 2nd for all the world to see. It turns out that Ultima Thule is referred to as a contact binary, two spherical remnant building blocks of the solar system which merge together like a snowman with less force than bumping into a car while parking. The first color image was taken by the Multispectral Visible Imaging Camera, or MVIC, at a distance of 85,000 miles, and it highlights a reddish surface. Other images showing greater detail were produced by the Long Range Reconnaissance Imager, or LORI and these have a higher spatial resolution than MVIC by approximately a factor of 5. In press images, the color MVIC image had been laid over onto the LORI image to show the color uniformity of the Ultima and the Thule lobes. This flyby is a historic achievement, said Dr. Stern. Never before had any spacecraft team tracked down such a small body at such a high speed so far away in the abyss of space. New Horizons has set a new bar for state-of-the-art spacecraft navigation. And also, Jeff Moore, New Horizons Geology and Geophysics team lead says, New Horizons is like a time machine, taking us back to the birth of the solar system. We are seeing a physical representation of the beginning of planetary formation, frozen in time. Studying Ultima Thule is helping us understand how planets form, both those in our own solar system and those orbiting other stars in our galaxy. Congratulations to the entire New Horizons mission team. Humanity has received yet another milestone space science achievement from your efforts. NASA's InSight lander, which touched down on Mars on November 26, has provided the first ever sounds of the Martian winds on the red planet. InSight sensors recorded a haunting low rumble caused by vibrations from the wind, estimated to be blowing between 10 to 15 miles per hour on December 1st from northwest to southeast. These winds were consistent with the direction of dust devils streaking in the landing area, which were observed from orbit. Capturing this audio was an unplanned treat, said Bruce Bennard, InSight principal investigator. But one of the things our mission is dedicated to is measuring motion on Mars, and naturally, that includes motion caused by sound waves. On the 19th, InSight deployed its first instrument onto the surface of Mars, completing a major mission milestone. New images from the lander show the seismometer on the ground, its copper-colored covering faintly illuminated in the Martian dusk. InSight's timetable of activities on Mars has gone better than we'd hoped, said InSight project manager Tom Hoffman. Getting the seismometer safely on the ground is an awesome Christmas present. The InSight team has been working carefully towards deploying its two dedicated science instruments onto Martian soil since landing on Mars. Meanwhile, the Rotation and Interior Structure Experiment, RISE, which does not have its own instrument, has already begun using InSight's radio connection with Earth to collect preliminary data on the planet's core. Assuming that there are no unexpected issues, the InSight team plans to deploy the lander's heat probe, also known as the Heat Flow and Physical Properties Probe, or HP3, onto the Martian surface by late January. HP3 will be on the east side of the lander's workspace, roughly the same distance away from the lander as the seismometer. 
It was an exciting month for the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, NASA's current asteroid rendezvous and first sample return mission. On December 31st, the craft successfully entered orbit around the 1,600-foot wide diamond-shaped asteroid, maintaining a fixed distance of one mile. Also earlier in the month, data from the mission had revealed water locked inside the clays that make up its scientific target. During the mission's approach phase, the science team on Earth aimed three of the spacecraft's instruments towards Bennu and began making the mission's first scientific observations of the asteroid. Data obtained from the spacecraft's two spectrometers, the OSIRIS-REx Visible and Infrared Spectrometer OVRIS, and the OSIRIS-REx Thermal Emission Spectrometer OTES, revealed that the presence of molecules that contain oxygen and hydrogen atoms bonded together, known as hydroxyls. The team suspects that these hydroxyl groups exist across the asteroid in water-bearing clay minerals, meaning that at some point, Bennu's rocky material interacted with water. While Bennu itself is too small to have ever hosted liquid water, the finding does indicate that liquid water was present at some time on Bennu's parent body, a much larger asteroid. The presence of hydrated minerals across the asteroid confirms that Bennu, a remnant from the early formation of the solar system, is an excellent specimen for OSIRIS-REx mission to study the composition of primitive volatiles and organics, said Amy Simon, OVRIS deputy instrument scientist. When samples of this material are returned by the mission to Earth in 2023, scientists will receive a treasure trove of new information about the history and evolution of our solar system. And just announced, scientists from the Southwest Research Institute have captured new images of a volcanic plume on Jupiter's moon Io during Juno spacecraft's 17th flyby of the gas giant. On December 21st, during Earth's winter solstice, four of Juno's cameras captured images of the moon Io, the most volcanic body in our solar system. JunoCam, the Stellar Reference Unit, SRU, and the Jovian Infrared Oral Mapper, GRAM, and the Ultraviolet Imaging Spectrograft, UVS, observed Io for over an hour, providing a glimpse of the moon's polar regions as well as evidence of an active eruption. We knew we were breaking new ground with the multispectral campaign to view Io's polar region, but no one expected we would get so lucky and see an active volcanic plume shooting material off the moon's surface, said Scott Bolton, principal investigator of the Juno mission. Io's volcanoes were discovered by NASA's Voyager spacecraft in 1979. Io's gravitational interaction with Jupiter drives the moon's volcanoes, which emit umbrella-like plumes of sulfur dioxide gas and produce extensive balsatic lava fields. The recent Io images were captured at the halfway point of the mission, which is scheduled to complete a map of Jupiter in July 2021. Launched in 2011, Juno arrived at Jupiter in 2016. The spacecraft orbits Jupiter every 53 days, studying its auroras, atmosphere, and magnetosphere.
I really love that track, Fall for Sport, by the artist Joey on the Holodeck Records compilation, Holodeck Vision 1, released back in the middle of 2018. Joey Pestiglione, the artist behind the project, is a skilled synth performer and a sound designer, and he's been involved in many ways in the burgeoning Austin electronic music scene for some time. Buy this great track and 29 others over at holodeckrecords.bandcamp.com. This month on Unlikely Encounters, we're going to check out an excerpt from New York's late-night radio talk show pioneer, Long John Nebel. From the mid-1950s until his death in 1978, Nebel was a hugely popular all-night radio host, with millions of regular listeners to his syndicated program. The program dealt mainly with anomalous phenomenon, UFOs, and other paranormal and offbeat topics. Nebel was best described as a curious skeptic with respect to the reality of his interviewees' stories. He frequently characterized himself as a non-believer. Regarding the claims of the many contactees he interviewed, Nebel stated, I don't buy any of it. This is from the March 7, 1958 show, featuring an interview with ufologist Arthur Aho. Uh, I had a, quite a trip out here. I stopped across the country. I drove this time instead of flying because, well, I have quite a few places to stop and the winter weather isn't too good, so I compared notes with a, quite a number of people coming across country and I found where a lot of people had seen flying saucers and talked about them, but they're beginning to accept those pretty well by this time, it seems like, in the field. But the interesting thing that I found was the interest that is, uh, um, you might say, in the atmosphere of research labs and so on is what makes them fly. And uh, there's quite a move to determine or you might say research into the basics in electronics as a result of flying saucers and that's quite intriguing I've done a quite a bit of research in that and I find it very fascinating and some of the ends seem to be tying together uh, if I may interrupt for a moment uh, Arthur you say that you've been doing research uh, yes not too much with um, actually laboratory research, especially with the basic ideas involved behind it. I have done some, and I plan to do some more. But this is in the line of flying saucers. Uh, It started with flying saucers, and uh, when you observe these craft flying in the air, why, you say, well, something is behind this. They're flying on something, and they don't come down for fuel, so you say, well, how do they fly? And then you observe a rather peculiar motion along with the saucers. You see a, a definite pulsing motion, especially in the light emanations from the ships themselves, and also they seem to bob up and down when you observe them from the side. So it's, it's a very definite pattern that seems to fall in line, and it gives somewhat of a clue for basic research in a way from that. Mm-hmm. Arthur, um, I'm interested in the, uh, your description of these saucers. Uh, I am led to believe by your uh, recent uh, statement that you evidently have seen a tremendous amount of saucers, certainly, or UFOs, certainly just seeing one bobbing up and down would not be an adequate amount to continue your research in this direction. Uh, well, I have seen quite a few. Uh, in one place in California, there's a fault line that runs up close to San Francisco, and it runs alongside the hill. Or it goes I'm down sorry, I didn't get that turn. What line? Uh, it's a fault line in the uh, earth. It's the uh, fault line of earthquake line. It's where the earthquakes occur in California. I it's, a, it's a fault line. And this runs behind the Stanford University along the hill there. And on several occasions, I've observed strange goings on around that, as if something or other was keeping tabs on it or surveying or something. And you notice lights, for instance, those on this special type of observation, you see lights against this hillside that are pulsating, and they go down to a fine pinpoint, and then they come to a bigger one, looks like a moon or something, and you say, well, there's some kind of a car there, maybe. And Finally, when one of them raises up above the ridge, you say, well, a car couldn't very well do that, so you watch it and you don't seem to know exactly what it is, but I have a friend that lives there alongside this hill, and he and his wife had 
called our attention to this, uh, what they call phenomena going on around there, and uh, they had one experience that was rather interesting, and in fact, they followed a saucer that came in close to their house. They got in their car, and they followed this craft for approximately two hours. It was meandering around the area and going up one road and up a canyon or a draw and then back out again. And finally, it went up a draw and stopped, and they drove their car within about, oh, they say around 75 feet of it. And uh, it was not on the ground. It was hovering above the ground, and they got out of the car and got oh, within about 45 feet of it. And this man works in an electronics plant, and he said he, he had a feeling very similar to being alongside of a big generator. He said his hair seemed to want to stand on end, and he felt a tingling sensation. How close him. was he to this? About 40 or 45 feet, mm -hmm. he said. He and his wife both, and uh, did they she, have... Did she have this same sensation of her hair? Yes, she claimed to be exactly. And they stayed alongside of it, they claimed, for about 15 minutes and uh, observed it. And nothing happened, so they thought, well, maybe they'd better get out of this. So they got their car and went back home. But they have observed the same type of going on as I observed there, oh, perhaps two or three nights a week. And uh, I have watched that. And then I have seen some from the airplane. I wonder if I may just interrupt again, Arthur. Recently, there was a, tele, uh, a telecast, I think it was uh, January 22nd, if I'm not mistaken, on the Armstrong Circle Theater. And on that particular evening, at least the telecast was uh, seen uh, in this section of the country at 10 o'clock at night. And uh, Major Donald Kehoe was on it, a representative of the Air Force, and the man who... I'd like to talk to you about for a moment was a Dr. Menzel of Harvard University. When he was interviewed by Doug Edwards, he made this statement, and I think I'm almost quoting him. He said, it's a lot of hot air, and he meant it two ways. Yes, I'm quite well aware of his reports. In fact, he's quoted the most because of his negative attitude, so... You mean to, to be able to be quoted a lot, you have to have a negative attitude? Well, it depends on who's quoting. I see. Uh-huh. Um. That's a band called Krang with a track called Yurke off the Witches Halloween Brew released in August of 2017. This Burning Witches Records compilation features a range of spooky synth tracks from 19 different artists, including 
Xander Harris, Timothy Fife, Thomas Ragsdale, Graham Resnicks, and many others. You can buy this over at burningallwitches.bandcamp.com. I look forward to playing more from this compilation in the future. So wrapping up the show, we've got night vision. This is devoted to all aspects of astronomy. So finally, the skies cleared in my area, and I was able to spend an hour or so this month in the cold December air hunting for Comet 46P Wirtanen. On the first night, I drove out to a nearby field with clear views of the southern sky. The comet was nearing its peak on December 16th, and I was eager to find this previously elusive target. Using Sky Safari on my laptop in night mode, I was able to find what I believed to be the comet with my binoculars mounted on a tripod. This is a faint blurry dot that aligned just southeast of the star Menkar, which is in the upper leftmost part of the constellation Cetus. I also aligned it with the naked eye visible triangle of the head of Taurus. Using these two easily found references, I was able to pop over to my 8 inch scope and narrow in on the area. I felt a great sense of accomplishment when I first saw the comet magnified in the scope. It didn't have a distinct tail or much of a visible core, but it was an indeed impressive, clearly identifiable comet. As I mentioned in last month's show, the coma, which is a large spherical part of the comet, is upwards to the size of Jupiter. So it's a massive object, despite being composed of thin gas and ablated materials. Over the course of the next week, I tracked 46P across the sky until weather and the holidays prevented me from seeing it further. On one of the final nights I could see it, I was able to show my 9-year-old daughter, who was just as impressed as I was the first night. That evening was the 17th, and we were able to see a clear cometary core in the middle of the coma. I also used averted vision and darted my eyes back and forth slightly, and was able to discern a tail of sorts against the black background of space. On December 12th, I got a call from my good buddy Steve while driving home from work. Right as I parked at 5.39pm Eastern Time, and he was still driving 40 miles away, I just happened to see a large solid light come out of the trees across the sky heading towards me. I knew right away it was the ISS. I told him to look for the bright light passing over the moon, and he pulled over and watched it with me. Without any prompt, he asks what the bright star above it was, and I was happy to see it was actually Mars. It passed from west to east and lasted for about two minutes from the time I first saw it to the time it went out of view. I'm so glad we got to share that experience together, and it was cool to see it pass in between the moon and Mars. And as a bonus, the next day while still at work, my Starwalk iPhone app gave me an alert that the ISS was rising, again from the west, at 4.45pm. I ran outside to the outdoor patio we've got off the west side of the building, and a coworker followed me. Together we were able to find the faintly illuminated space station emerging in and out of high-level clouds, and eventually clearly visible as it passed overhead. It got so bright as it headed east that I was able to capture a photo of it with just my phone camera. I really wasn't expecting to see the ISS at all this month, and I was truly stoked to see it twice in such spontaneous viewing conditions. Lastly, this month was a great chance to catch the annual Geminids meteor shower. The weather prevented me from seeing anything on the night of the peak. I did spend a couple of hours over the two nights prior lying under blankets on the flat roof above my kitchen. It's way less sketchy and warmer than it sounds. I happen to see a good number of large meteors total, and a handful of faint ones every few minutes. I would have had to drive pretty far to get away from the light pollution that plagues my area. So it was pretty great just sitting under the stars staring up for the time in between. So often we look up at something and miss the general majesty that is the entire sky full of stars. The key to watching meteors is to lie down comfortably with as much of the sky visible above you as possible, and not really focus on any one thing. Letting the vastness of everything settle into an unfocused gaze, you'll start to see previously faint stars get brighter as your eyes adjust to the dark. Soon, you'll be able to see small streaks appear around the sky, with larger streaks being clearly visible and often trackable when you look at them. So it's a fine balance of not looking at anything in particular, but being able to quickly look when a target appears. Anyhow, it was a very chill and frigid way to get in some backyard astronomy. So that wraps up this month's episode of Galaxy Rise. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians and labels and science communicators who've helped make this show what it is. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios, and it's hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Let me know what you think by emailing hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter, 
at rise underscore galaxy, search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook and YouTube, or visit www.galaxyrise.com. Until next month, clear skies.